channel open. Welcome back to Weekly Trek, a proud member of the Tricorder Transmissions Podcast Network. I am your host, Alex Perry. What's today's date? The date. Today's show was recorded on February 21st, 2020, and is current through the Star Trek Picard episode, Stardust City Rag. So beware of spoilers. All right, let's get into the show. Good day, Voyager, and welcome to A Briefing with Neelix. It's a catchy title, isn't it? Weekly Trek is a 30-minute news show covering the biggest stories from the Star Trek franchise. We are in a new golden age of Star Trek. There are five television shows at some point in production, possibly more on the way, and enough merchandise to fill the Bajoran wormhole. So stick with me, and I'll help you sort the real facts from a lot of the Dominion propaganda that you'll find online. But I can't do this alone, and my guest this week is returning guest, Jessica Shaffalo. Jessica, welcome back to Weekly Trek. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, Jessica, you know the drill. I want to know something that's got you feeling good about Star Trek at the moment. What's got you moving at Warp 10? You know what? What I'm excited about right now is normally Star Trek for us, it's science fiction, right? We're watching it on TV. Uh, we're talking about it online, and rarely do we get to have it sort of integrated into our actual day-to-day life. And I'm a member of the local International Federation of Trekkers group here in my town, and we're planning our annual Star Trek a fundraiser. And it's just, it's been really refreshing getting to actually hang out with people in person who love Star Trek as much as I do, people getting together for Picard watches. And, and planning to try and do a little good in the world. So instead of dreaming about Roddenberry's vision for a, a brighter future, you know, people are actually coming together to do it here in our community. And so that's what I'm really jazzed about. And we're in full force planning. I love that. You know, for all the bad rap that Star Trek fans get for being lonesome nerds, there is certainly a huge amount of community building that this franchise is responsible for and that the fandom has you know, really sort of glommed on to. And even though sometimes it can feel like the glory days of that are behind us, you know, you watch something like Trekkies, the documentary, and see that sort of heyday of of fan community action in the 1990s, it really has not gone away. And that's really, really exciting. What what charity are you raising money for this year? You know what? The group actually does a number of charities. I mean, oh, cool. contributes to the local food bank, the local um, police association. I mean, a number of charities. I couldn't pick just one. So uh, I'm really excited about it. And yeah, it's definitely not an isolated group. We all like to get together and be geeks together. So lots of fun. Well, that is fun. And yeah, there's still groups all over the country. So if you're listening and looking for a little in-person fellowship, though social media can certainly scratch a fair amount of that itch, it's still fun to be with people in person. So look up the local chapter in your community. I love that pick, Jessica. Thank you so much. So my pick this week is I am not quite finished, uh, so no spoilers. Although by the time everybody hears this, I almost certainly will have finished, so spoilers away. I am uh, really enjoying the Star Trek Picard tie-in novel, The Last Best Hope by Una McCormick. I'll have many more thoughts to provide in detail about the book in a review on Trek Core, but the book is really good. It provides a lot of really important context to the events behind the show, shows you much more of the early days of the Romulan evacuation, what Picard went through, you know, during those years, which we've only kind of seen sort of brief snippets of in the show itself. It is rare for me to say this, but this is the first piece of tie-in fiction that I actually 
actually think should be considered quote-unquote canon because it does do a very good job of being 100% integrated with the show itself and the episodes and there's very very few discontinuities between them but also it's so laser focused on the character of Picard you really don't kind of learn a whole lot about what's going on in the galaxy at large or what's going on with some of these other characters and so it does allow for later writers and producers to go in lots of different directions and not kind of touch this story and make it irrelevant anymore. Uh, It is a a really good kind of context setting piece. It's the kind of context that the folks who will listen to my show will be interested in getting, but you know, your average viewer probably doesn't. Jessica, have you, uh, Star Trek novels, are they, uh, are they something that you're, uh, you, have you ever read any? You know what? I've actually just started getting into them. I'm, I'm newer to the novels and it can be intimidating when you haven't kept up on where do I start? And so I actually am meaning to pick that one up because I thought starting with the newer shows, you don't have quite the backlog to get through. But I certainly want to to catch up on, on the older ones as well because I've been hearing lots of good things about them and people posting about them a lot more. I think a lot of people are revisiting the novels now that the, the shows are refreshed. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. Starting with the Discovery novels and actually this novel too, they're the perfect kind of gateway entry points into Star Trek novels because the Discovery novels, all you need to have watched is the two seasons of Discovery and you will have no trouble getting into it. And last best hope, you really just need to have watched the first five episodes of Picard and you're ready to go with with everything. It's not like there are, over the later years of the Star Trek books, before the shows came back, they had sort of developed these very complex internal continuities and you sort of have to read them in a certain order in order to understand what's going on across all of the multiple different shows but with these new novels that are coming out, they're very much not like that. They require you to have seen the shows that are on, but nothing more than that. So it's a it's a really good way of getting into, into this large backstory of great stories. Exactly. All right. Well, with that, let's turn to the week's top stories. There's a war going on, and I'm a reporter. So our first story this week is an appropriate one, given the episode that was just on last week. This is a story about an interview with Jerry Ryan about her struggles to return to playing the character of Seven of Nine. So this comes from the Deadline official Star Trek Picard podcast, which if you have not yet listened to, I highly recommend. It is a great little podcast. The episodes only run about 30 to 40 minutes. They release on the same day as the new episodes every week and they have, it's Deadline Hollywood and they have got in, you know, they had Alex Kurtzman and Akiva Goldsman and Kirsten Beyer and Patrick Stewart, you know, lots of people who are affiliated with the production of Picard in to talk about the episodes each week. And this week they had on Jerry Ryan and she talked a little bit about this at STLV last year and I think we talked a little bit about it then, but given that you know we've now seen the character she went into more detail and we have much more context about it which is that she, she said that she had a really difficult time finding the new voice for Seven of Nine when she read the script for Picard um, she was talking about how well actually let's just hear from Jerry herself I was panicking when the first when I finally saw the first script and I know for this character specifically well yours too I mean she was I had four years of playing a character that was very specific and she went from being full Borg to being, you know, mostly human, but there was a lot of transition, but she was still pretty stylized and specific at the end of that four years. This is 20 years later and 
when I saw the first script, which Michael wrote, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Not knowing a lot of, we're really not knowing any of the backstory yet because I hadn't talked to anybody when I finally got the script in any detail. I panicked because I couldn't find her voice. I couldn't hear her in any of this dialogue because it was so different. Her voice was so specific for those four years, partly because of the character, the way it was written and developed, but partly also because Brandon Braga wrote or rewrote most of Seven's dialogue over that four-year period. Not every line, but a lot of it. So it was a very specific voice. And this was so different, so much more casual and human and slangy and not Seven to me. And it was, and I panicked. So was it the cadence or the content? Everything. Yeah. I was, just, I, I just panicked. And I think, <laughs> because, <laughs> the, I can't really tell you exactly what he told me that, but I just needed oh, something. You can tell actor. us exactly what he told yeah, me. Yeah, we're good with that. Yeah. Well, no, I can't because the story. It'll give away... Well, not, no, not really. Point. Maybe you actually do know at this not point. Not really. I just said to her, well, we, yeah. we sat around, we read it over and over again, and she was getting up and cooking. She was cooking lunch. She kept <laughs> cooking. Lunch. I, See, I'm, I'm fucked. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I'm totally fucked. I'm like, let's calm down. And, I, and she's like, she's too human. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what if, just try this. This was like two hours into I was this, like, just try this. Pretend she's pretending to be more human. Just to ah. fit in. Yeah, he said, it, she, what if she makes a conscious choice wow, to that's, be that's as like, human as possible? And she did it. She's like, and it was that's that what easy. I it. It was just, and I, I think I was just so panicked that I yeah. couldn't see now, that. That panic. sounds. So she was talking about how, as you could hear there, you know, Brandon Braga had written most of Seven of Nine's dialogue during the run of Voyager. And now this is a new set of writers. And so they've written the character a little bit differently. In addition to there just having been, you know, two decades worth of history for this character and her having sort of, you know, experienced a lot of life, so to speak, which we certainly got a good sense of in this episode. But I guess it, it was Jonathan Del Arco who helped her kind of figure out how to unlock this updated Seven through saying that she should think about about Seven as pretending to be more human just to fit in. And that, for Jerry, that was the moment when everything came together and her nerves went away. And I think this is a really sort of faithful evolution of the character. You know, the Seven of Nine we saw in this episode had exactly the same kind of ticks and, and mannerisms of the Seven of Voyager, but passed through this sort of, you know, she definitely was behaving more human, but with just these sort of subtle hint of the person that she used to be. Jessica, did you enjoy the return of Seven of Nine? I did, but I also found it to be, you know, sad to see how her character developed. I think Jerry Ryan did a great job but in a way, I felt like we almost saw her regress a bit because in Voyager, she started out very guarded and judgmental and skeptical about becoming more human. And we see her whole arc through that show. Um, she's shown the brighter side of, of humanity and really embraces her own humanity and is given a much more positive vision by the crew and this bright future when they get back to Earth that she's supposed to have with the Federation that, that you're hoping is going to be idyllic. And instead, she comes back and sees the darker side of humanity as, as we're seeing in Picard, how things have turned out and, and the role she's now playing, the people that she's lost. And unfortunately, you know, she's seeing that 
dark side of humanity. And, and it seems like she's struggling to hold on to what she she fought so hard to obtain throughout Voyager, being very you know hurt and jaded and again, guarded. And so I think she did a wonderful job with it. She's always done such a great job showing a wide range of emotions, but it was also hard to watch. You know, I think we all wanted better for her character, um, of course, getting back to Earth, and it, it doesn't seem like she's gotten that. Yeah, it, the, the character is a really interesting one. Of course, Jerry Ryan plays her fabulously. You know, it, it does seem like Seven of Nine really needed that firm hand of a Janeway character in order to behave in the way that we would anticipate a 24th century human to behave. And we saw shades of this throughout the whole of Voyager where, you know, Seven would do things that, you know, the rest of the crew wouldn't have done because she did not have the same upbringing that they did because she was a Borg and the Borg don't have any moral compass. And it certainly does seem like, you know, she has lost her way a little bit. And I think the term you use is absolutely right, you know, regressed a bit in some ways in terms of how she behaves, driven both by not having that kind of really strong force in her life anymore. We don't know, you know, where Janeway is in this timeline or or where the rest of the crew are in this time period. But, and in addition to that, this sort of trauma that the character has experienced has sort of driven her to this extreme set of behaviors. And, you know, I'm assuming this will not be the last we see of Seven of Nine in this season of Star Trek Picard. And I'm, I'm really excited to see where we go next with this. Absolutely. And I think it was a trauma for all of us who had to had to watch it as well. <laughs> you know, so I, I I hope I hope that they bring some uh some positivity to, to her her storyline, but it was a rough start, I must say. So I think what's happening here is, you know, they're telling one story over the course of 10 episodes, and this was episode five. And so in some ways it makes sense that this was the low point, you know, because every story has that arc of things start off okay then they get worse, and then we fix it by the end of the story. I was going to say, and if we want to find a bright spot, I was trying to think of, you know, what's something positive uh, about such a a sad and difficult-to-watch episode. At least we get to see her in some much more practical clothes for for getting out there as a ranger and, you know, fighting bad guys. It was nice to see her be able to really showcase Jerry Ryan's acting abilities without some of the the aesthetic distraction she had on sensible shoes. Uh, I saw she retweeted a comment. Somebody said, hey, at least the girl's got pockets now. (laughs) And so I I really enjoyed even stylistically how they they really uh, evolved her character. Yes, this was another fabulous entry into Star Trek Picard's now quite lengthy lineage of fabulous 24th century knitwear Mm -hmm. uh, with that sweater she was wearing, (laughs) for sure. Our second story this week is a story that was in the Georgia Strait, which is a Vancouver-based entertainment magazine that was found by Daily Star Trek News, which is another Star Trek News podcast over on the Roddenberry Network. And it is with LeVar Burton. And it's not a long interview, and, and he talks about both Star Trek and Roots as part of that interview. He talks a little bit about Star Trek, but there was just one kind of little tidbit, particularly as it relates to whether he thinks he will appear in Star Trek Picard. And he said, I'm not a betting man, but I would wager good money that you'll probably see all the next-gen cast at some point or another, just not all at the same time. So we 
think that he probably is not in season one, though, you know, anything's possible. Marina Sirtis and Jonathan Frakes were saying that they were not in the show right up until the moment that they were announced that they were in the show. So we could still see a little of our cameo in season one. But overall, I think it sounds like the intent is for all of the seven main cast members of The Next Generation to show up at some point. And we know that Geordie has a role in this Picard story, at least going all the way back to the Romulan evacuation, the sort of tie-in materials, which granted, are, as I say, are not canon, but sort of were developed in conjunction with the writer's room, have Geordie having been reassigned to Utopia Planitia to help with construction of the Romulan evacuation fleets. He did subsequently survive the destruction of Utopia Planitia. That is basically confirmed in the show itself. So, you know, Geordie's out there somewhere and probably is carrying, I would imagine, some of the same kind of feelings of guilt and regret around with him that Picard is feeling. Jessica, do you want to see Geordie come back in Star Trek Picard? I do. I think like you from the interview, it, it definitely seemed, you know, very vague and and but there's always always hope. I think it would be such a missed opportunity. I, I know he talks about how important his interaction with Hugh the Borg was um, back in Next Generation, and I thought it was uh, one of my favorite episodes, really, from from that series because it did have such a good emotional connection between them that you get to watch and and to not explore that more in the context of Picard would be disappointing. Uh, I think he was such a catalyst for his character, and I'm excited to see how they play that out. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, he says in the interview, you know, given that Hugh is a character in this new Picard show, that Geordie as the person he developed his sort of initial human relationship with obviously should show up in some way, shape, or form. And I think I entirely agree with that. I'd love to see an older Geordie and an older Hugh share a scene together where Hugh sort of demonstrates that he's come so much further in terms of reclaiming his individuality and being liberated from the Borg Collective. I think I'd really like to see that. Absolutely, I agree. So our third story this week is a little interview with uh, Jeff Lombardi, the prop master for Star Trek Picard, which was posted on StarTrek.com. We'll say StarTrek.com have been doing these amazing short kind of behind-the-scenes production videos for each episode of Picard, which you will also find in the Ready Room. They drop those in halfway through. This one was a really, really interesting look at the props for Picard, and particularly particularly a discussion around one of the props from the series pilot, Remembrance. So Jeff was talking about, you know, sort of their philosophy for building props for the show, him having sort of worked with Patrick Stewart to kind of get a sense of what Patrick liked and didn't like, using a lot of reference material from previous Star Treks that were set in the 24th century to figure out how to build upon those and sort of present a convincing evolution of several decades worth of this technology. But the most interesting prop is the B4 parts that were seen in Remembrance if you'll remember in one of the last scenes of the episode, when Picard goes to visit Dr. Girati at the Daystrom Institute, she kind of opens up this storage container and within it is B4. Well, it turns out the production did not make those B4 parts for Star Trek Picard. Those were data prop parts 
that had been used in Star Trek The Next Generation. So if you remember The Next Generation across multiple episodes, there are lots of episodes where we see bits and pieces of data, his head, his torso, his arms, his legs. And it turns out that the pieces that we saw in that drawer were pieces of data from the show. And you might be thinking, well, of course, I mean, it's CBS, they must have all that stuff. They just went into a storage unit and pulled it out and there it was. Well, actually, most of the props and costumes from the earlier TV shows were auctioned off by CBS after the cancellation of Enterprise. So they have very little of that left, and that included all of the data parts. But CBS Vice President of Star Trek Brand Development, John Van Sitters, helped Jeff Lombardi source the current owners of those pieces and convince them to loan them back to the production so they could use it in part of the episode. So Jeff was saying that the prop parts, they're unaltered. And, and the really nice thing was, you know, the prop parts had aged in exactly the same way that they would have wanted the B4 pieces to have aged to show that two decades had passed since the events of Nemesis. And they they sort of didn't really do anything to make changes to it. They just sort of put it in the drawer and pulled it out and there it was on screen. It is so cool that these old next generation props have gotten a second life for Star Trek Picard. The only other thing that I thought was really interesting in this, in this little video is at one point he's showing various concept sketches for the Starfleet com badge from 2399 and we know it looks pretty similar to the Orchid things come badge. But if you look at the sort of design evolution that they went through, some of the earlier original concepts were actually much, much closer to the all good things version of the com badge and that they were only very, very slightly different from what we saw in that episode. So really great to see them taking such care and putting such thought into the continuity of the show and making it feel like a faithful continuation from the 24th century shows. I mean, that was quite a moment when Gerati opens the drawer and and there is the replica parts of Brent Spiner. Jessica, were you as, as surprised as I was to discover that those were old Next Generation props? Yeah, I was I was thrilled. I, I love it. I think it's such a nice backstory for real in-depth Trek fans who care about that kind of history. As you said, the, the pieces have aged the same amount of time as the timeline of the show. I love that they didn't have to do anything to them. The only thing I will say is as a Star Trek fan, I collect things myself. I, I have shelves in my home office. I like to put things on. And I was surprised to hear that they pulled some of those pieces out of crates because if I had gotten my hands on one of those, it would be prominently displayed somewhere. <laughs> I can just imagine, you know, having having the head on one of my shelves. And so uh, I, I had to chuckle when I read that they uh, they found them in, in different crates that, that the collectors loaned out instead of pulling them out of someone's living room as a, a proud display. <laughs> Yes, there are some collectors who have so much stuff that even things that most Star Trek fans would kill to own, although I'm not sure I would necessarily want a data head staring back at me every day from across the room. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good likeness for Brent Spiner, but it's also a very creepy one. But they have these collections that are so large that they just have all this stuff sitting in, in crates, which is a, which is a huge shame. I, I own some original props from the earlier Star Trek productions myself. I have not yet been contacted by anybody on the production <laughs> about loaning it back, but I'll just put it on the air that if someone is interested in me loaning stuff, back for the show, I would be happy to make that sacrifice for a small fee. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I can assure you that mine are all proudly displayed and very well taken care of. As it should be. <laughs> 
And our last story this week is a bit of a sad one. Kevin Conway, who played Emperor Kalos in the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Rightful Heir, passed away several weeks ago, uh, suddenly at the age of 77. Uh, he was a longtime film and TV actor. His film roles included things like 13 Days, Gettysburg, Gods and Generals, but he was also a really prolific TV actor and had done a number of guest starring roles in very high profile productions, including Star Trek The Next Generation. And actually, was working pretty much right up until his death. He had recently completed voice work for the latest reboot of the Outer Limits TV show, which I think is going to premiere at some point uh, within the next few months. So uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to Kevin's family. All right, well, we've talked about the facts, and now let's speculate on what's going to happen in the future of Star Trek. You make some very good points, Captain, but it's still all speculation and theory. So each week, I and my guest give you a wish or theory we're nurturing about any of the shows that are on the air, upcoming, or the future of the franchise as a whole. So Jessica, let's hear your theory or wish for this week. You know, I don't actually have a theory. Um, my theories always tend to be wrong, and so I've stopped trying. Um, I love that they keep us guessing, but I one of my favorite things to do after I've watched a new episode is to go online and read other people's fan theories because there are people out there who are way more creative than I am. And uh, I wanted to share one I was digging into. Um, I found off of denofgeek.com because if you've watched the latest episode of Picard and hopefully by the time this airs you have, we got quite a surprise ending with a character I was really growing to like, Dr. Gerardi, and wondering why she did what she did, turning on on a man who he saw from her, her memory flashback was a lover of hers. And I saw a couple theories that they talk about she had to have some great contribution towards creating the, the two AI twins that we are, that we're seeing in Picard. And one of them said maybe she was a prototype along the way and uh, that could be how she contributed. And I thought that was a really interesting theory. If, if you want to read more about it, uh, again, I got that one off of Den of Geek. But when I was digging into it, I thought it was really interesting. And um, I'm really excited to see how they play that out. But as I said, a little bummed out because I was enjoying her character. I thought that she was a nice foil for some of the more serious characters that we've been seeing in the show. She almost reminded me a bit of Ensign Tilly from Discovery. Mm -hmm. And so now that she's turned... Uh, I'm a bit bummed out. So we'll see if she gets any redemption or if she's going to keep plodding down this darker path. Yeah, what a cliffhanger for that episode. And what a heel turn for the character that they had sort of set up as the every woman character for for the show. You know, her role in these first few episodes, particularly in the last couple of episodes, has largely been to serve as the proxy for the audience, encouraging the characters to explain what was going on so she could understand and then so we, the audience, could understand. But yeah, to discover that she had this sort of deep hidden agenda was, uh, uh, was quite a shock. And, and uh, that's an interesting theory. I, I hadn't really thought about that. I guess there's a shot from one of the trailers of her doing a mind meld with O. So, you know, maybe that plays into it in some way, but I think there's lots more for us to find out and I'm very excited to do so. But yeah, I think, I, you know, I, I was really enjoying the direction that the character uh, was going in and this is, you know, quite a significant departure from that. So I guess we'll just have to see what happens. I like that at least they're keeping us guessing. <laughs> they are certainly keeping us guessing. I, I don't really 
have much of a sense at this point where the show is going. But, you know, I'm really enjoying it and, and looking forward to finding out where it lands. So my theory this week is actually another listener submission, this time from former guest of the show, Heather Kirby, at NerdyGirl33 on Twitter. And her theory is that we will get a very quick heel turn from Star Trek Picard into Star Trek Discovery Season 3, and that Star Trek Discovery Season 3 will premiere very shortly after Star Trek Picard. Her theory is that it will premiere as quickly as the next week after. I think there might be a few weeks gap. Star Trek Picard is scheduled to end on March the 26th. Easter is like two or three weeks later. I think Discovery will will land maybe towards the end of April. But I think we are getting very close to learning a lot more about when Star Trek Discovery will come back. The reason I say that is because we just saw on Twitter yesterday some new poster art for Star Trek Discovery Season 3 has begun circulating. So folks who are on the CBS All Access Insider mailing list, it's this sort of small group of CBS All Access subscribers who get these sort of surveys every now and again, asking them about things that they watch, things that they want to watch, sort of you know, ask them to typical survey stuff, you know, react to this, react to that. Well, the insiders got a survey sent around in the last couple of days, and it included within it a number of sample poster arts for Discovery Season 3, being like, do you like it like this? Do you like it like this? Do you like it like that? Which are very cool. You can go on Twitter and or Facebook, and you can find them anywhere. But that certainly says to me that the promotional machine for Star Trek Discovery, even though we can't see it ramping up yet, is ramping up behind the scenes. And an April premiere which is not very long after Picard goes off the air, would be right around the same gap between the premiere of season one and two. So if they want to keep a regular production schedule, it does make sense for them to drop it. Not too long after the end of Star Trek Picard, Jessica, would you like us to go straight from Picard and into Discovery? Absolutely. I'm going to need something to tide me over. I I absolutely loved season two, and I actually rewatched it while I was waiting for Picard. So Picard's filling a great void there. And then when Picard ends, I'm sure I'm going to be in the same boat. So the sooner the better. I don't know if they're going to tease us with any new short tracks, but I just need them to keep that content coming. Absolutely. And if they do go right into Discovery, it will be 23 unbroken weeks of new Star Trek with 10 episodes for the first season of Picard and 13 episodes for Discovery. And that's half a year right there. You can't sniff at that. No, that's awesome. And I think that it's been a long time coming and I'm really excited to see, you know, the new shows that they're teasing as well. And I wonder how they're going to space them out as they keep rolling out new shows. Yeah. There was a Viacom CBS investor call earlier this week and Bob Backish, who is the CEO of Viacom CBS, was talking about Star Trek as part of that. And this was nothing new that we have not already talked about on the show, but talked about how there was Picard, there was Discovery, there were the two animated shows, and then there were two more shows in the works. Same thing that Alex Kurtzman told TrekCore earlier this year. Also mentioned the Star Trek movie that's that's starting to percolate over at Paramount Pictures, which very strongly suspect is the Noah Hawley one that Noah Hawley has talked about and we've talked about on 
the show and also that we can expect more Picard novels from Simon and Schuster. So Alex Kurtzman's plan of, of there being Star Trek on pretty much all year is one that looks like it's very close to coming to fruition. You know, we're going to get close this year with Lower Decks 2. That's 33 weeks of Star Trek out of 52. So toss in a couple more short treks and we are in the money. It's awesome. It's a great time to be a Trek fan. It is a great time to be a Trek fan. Do you have a theory or a wish for Discovery, Picard, or the future of the franchise that you'd like to share? Tweet them to me at Weekly Trek, and I might feature your theory in a future episode. Well, that's all the time we've got for this episode of Weekly Trek. Thank you so much to my guest, Jessica Shaffalo, for joining me today. Jessica, how can people contact you if they want to continue the conversation? You can find me on Twitter. I'm very active there about Star Trek at Jessica Shaffalo. Or you can find me on my Trek-specific Instagram, Troubled with Tribbles. (laughs) I love that. And you can find this show on Twitter at Weekly Trek and me at Alexander T. Perry. I do not have anywhere near as cool of a Star Trekified handle <laughs> as you do. And if you enjoy the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast player of choice. And please check out some of the other great shows on the Tricorder Transmissions. And if you like our shows, please also consider becoming a Patreon of Tricorder, which you can find at patreon.com slash the Tricorder Transmissions. And lastly, if you're looking for Star Trek news on the internet, I hope you will turn to trekcore.com. Well, thank you, Jessica. Thank you to all of my listeners. And until next week, live long and prosper. Prosper.